This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Ah, and welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends, and it's great to be back after uh, two weeks away. We ran some repeat programs. I hope you enjoyed those, but we are live tonight. Uh, Derek P. Gilbert, the host of Skywatch TV, a weekly Christian television program, is here to connect the dots uh, between scripture, archaeology, Bible prophecy, and more to expose the, uh, the enemy in the imminent end-time showdown between the fallen realm and the kingdom of God. Giants are real. The small G gods of the pagans are real. Dragons are real. And their ultimate goal? It's to kill you. Derek joins me this hour. Coming up in hour two, Joseph Lorendo is from New Hampshire, and he's lived a life of serendipity. He's the author of Cosmic Coincidences, a memoir of cosmic proportions. Carlos Cagina is the technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer. And yes, we are live streaming tonight on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. You know, I I still get a lot of people... Uh, emailing me before showtime asking, what's on the show this week? What's happening tonight? It's it j- Just go to my website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and then bookmark it. All the show info is right there. The guests, the bios, uh, the links to their websites, a list of their books, and a link uh, to uh, Amazon for each of the books, strangeplanet.ca. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum. The May issue was just published, I think, on Friday. And all I need is your email address, and then you receive Inner Sanctum every month for free, delivered right to your email inbox. And uh, don't forget to check out the all-new Richard Serrett Show, weekday afternoons from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Saga 960 a.m., And you can stream it live if you're outside of the greater Toronto area. You can stream it live at saga960am.ca. Saga, as in Mississauga, is spelled S-A-U-G-A, 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 saga960am.ca. 
www.giantsgods.ca. Uh, in his new book, Giants, Gods, and Dragons, co-authored by his wife Sharon, Derek Gilbert reveals the identities of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the connections between Babel, Babylon, and what's in your wallet, the three dragons who will walk the earth in the last days, the name of the first spirit to rebel against God. Here's a hint. It wasn't Satan. The link between the fallen angels of Genesis and the titans of Greek mythology, the identity of Nimrod, and the true location of Babel, and more. Derek is also the author or co-author of a number of other books, including The Day the Earth Stands Still, Bad Moon Rising, Islam, Armageddon, and the Most Diabolical Double Cross in History, Veneration, Unveiling the Ancient Realms of Demonic Kings, and Satan's Battle Plan, for Armageddon, The Great Inception, The Last Clash of the Titans, and again, his latest, co-authored with his wife Sharon, Giants, Gods, and Dragons. Derek Gilbert, welcome back to the program. How are you? I'm doing well, Richard. It's an honor to be back. Delighted to have you. My wife and I uh, are re-watching, it's been a number of years, maybe 10 years since we saw it, uh, Left Behind, the three-part series uh, starring Kirk Cameron which, of course, is about, you know, the end times and the, uh, the final battle between good and evil. How, how accurate is the Left Behind series in your estimation? And, of course, it, it sort of begins with this pre-tribulation rapture. Do you subscribe to the, the, the notion of a pre-trib rapture? And, and maybe you should explain what that is exactly. Mm-hmm. Pre-tribulation rapture is a theory that uh, the Church, those who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, will be... Uh, basically supernaturally removed from the earth before the final seven-year period that is called the Great Tribulation. This is based on a prophecy that was given to the prophet Daniel by an angel, Gabriel, who described a period of 70 weeks. So these are actually weeks of years um, that there would be 70 weeks decreed for Daniel's people and uh, his holy city uh, to bring an end to uh, everything, and then uh, the Messiah would come and, uh, and, and basically restore justice on earth and set up his own kingdom. Um, this is kind of the time stamp for the pre-tribulational rapture theory, the assumption being that at the end of the 69th week, the, um, the Messiah arrived in Jerusalem. He was, he was announced. Um, a, a scholar about 100 years ago, Sir Robert Anderson, who interestingly was part of the investigative team uh, during the Jack the Ripper murders, which is something that uh, my wife has researched for her fiction series, The Red Wings Saga, which begins with the Ripper murders. Uh, Sir Robert Anderson wrote a book called The Coming Prince, and he calculated that the 360-day uh, month, based on the lunar calendar, the 30-day lunar month, which was the standard in ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Israel, still the standard for the Hebrew calendar today and the Muslim calendar as well, um, was how we can calculate the uh, length of time between the decree of the Persian king Artaxerxes to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and the arrival of Messiah. And uh, uh, Sir Robert calculated that uh, Jesus' triumphal entry in Jerusalem happened uh, exactly to the day. So that's right. the end of the 69th week. The 70th week, that final seven-year period, is the, the period of the, the time called the, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, when uh, Israel is really tested. The church is out of here, and uh, for many of us who accept the theory, if that 70 weeks theory, that 70 weeks prophecy, that uh, is the assumption on which we base this belief, because when the angel spoke to Daniel 
and said 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, presumably he meant the Jews. So the church is removed. There are other clues in, in the book of Revelation, but uh, we could do an entire hour just on that. But uh, sure. that's the pre-tribulational rapture. Um, Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins, when they created the Left Behind series, they, they had to take some creative license with the prophecies. Not everybody agrees with all of their interpretation. Um, I read, I think, the first six books in the series, and then I started noticing a lot of the secondary characters were named after baseball players from the 60s and 70s. <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, I was like, well, okay, maybe I should actually go to the Bible instead of getting my theology from fiction. And I say this as one who writes supernatural fiction from a Christian perspective. So, right. uh, you know, I don't mean that as any slight against uh, against LaHaye and Jenkins. Um what we do that's a little different in terms of end times prophecy, Sharon and me, is uh, apply the understanding of the Hebrew prophets and the apostles, that, and the early church, by the way, that the gods of Greece and Rome and Babylon and Canaan were real. Think of them as fallen angels, if you will, but they were real, and they had an influence in the, uh, uh, in the natural realm. And uh, when you start digging into what the pagans around ancient Israel believed, suddenly some of the weirder sections of the Bible, including end times prophecy, begin to make sense. So that's where we differ a little bit in our approach to under trying to understand the book of Revelation than uh, others. Okay, so this connection between the fallen angels in Genesis 6 that came down and commingled with the daughters of, of men and and had these... Uh, hybrids, if you will, half human, half an angel. Uh, these were the these were referred to as the Nephilim. So the how are they connected with the let's say the Titans of Greek mythology? Well, interestingly, the Jewish religious scholars of the Second Temple period—that's the time between the return from Babylon and the destruction of the Second Temple by Rome in 70 A.D. The Jewish religious scholars understood that very well. There are uh, places in the Septuagint translation, which was a translation done by Jewish scholars about 300 years before the birth of Jesus, from older Hebrew manuscripts into Greek, where they translated giants uh, or Nephilim or Rephaim, which is another term that we uh, find in the Bible, but it's there more than we think, because it's often translated into English as the dead or the shades. They would translate that Hebrew word Rephaim, into titanes or titans or gigantes or giants so they understood the connection the scholarly connection for us in the modern world who kind of lost this worldview i mean it fell out of favor with uh, christian theologians around the time of uh, augustine in the early fifth century uh, a scholar from estonia by the name of amar anus has done some fantastic work and showed a couple of things in a paper that he published in 1999, peer-reviewed secular paper. So he's not approaching this from a Christian perspective necessarily. He showed that the term used by the Greek poet Hesiod, who wrote a lot of what we know, uh, or what we know as Greek mythology, you know, the origin of the gods and the origin of the cosmos and the earth and so forth, the term that he used to refer to the men who lived during the Golden Age when Kronos ruled in heaven. He was the king of the Titans. Uh, he and his brothers and sisters were overthrown by Zeus and the Olympians and then banished to Tartarus, which is a level as far below Hades as the earth is below heaven. Uh, this term used by Hesiod for the men of the Golden Age, Merope's Anthropoi, actually derives from the Semitic root behind the word Rephaim. 
so you've got this connection between the Rephaim, which, simply put, were the spirits of the Nephilim, the spirits of the giants, and the demigod heroes of Greek and Roman mythology, like Hercules and, and Perseus and, and Bellerophon and Cadmus and so forth. By definition, those demigods were Nephilim. And the Jews, through up until about the second century, understood this. The early church fathers understood this. It, when you read the writings of the early church theologians for the first 400 years after the resurrection, it was just understood this is where demons come from, the spirits of those giants destroyed in the flood, and the giants were created when these fallen angels came to earth and uh, uh, you know, commingled with human women. The connection to the Titans in the New Testament, Second Peter chapter 2 and Jude verses 6 and 7, they both make reference to angels who sinned and specifically committed a sexual sin. And for that crime, they were condemned to Tartarus. In fact, in Second Peter 2 verse 4, uh, the English translation reads, uh, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but he thrust them down to hell. But the word in Greek is Tartarau, means he thrust them down to Tartarus, not Hades, Tartarus. Different place. Peter knew the difference. He lived in a world dominated by Greek religion and philosophy for 300 years before he wrote his letters. So um, the only angels we know of who committed a sexual sin are in Tartarus, just like the titans of Greek mythology, whose uh, name, by the way, according to that Estonian scholar Amar Anus, actually derives from the name of an ancient tribe of the Amorites, who were neighbors of the ancient Israelites. Ah, interesting, interesting. So, uh, Apollo, is, is he in Tartarus? No, he is not. Um, there was a second generation of uh, what the Bible calls sons of God, in Hebrew, B'nai Ha-Elohim, uh, again, we can think of them as angels, but that's a really imprecise term. After the Tower of Babel incident, God confused the languages of the nations, and he divided the nations. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 says that when God uh, numbered the, or divided the nations, he numbered them according to the number of the sons of God. And uh, there was a tradition among some of the pagans around ancient Israel that their chief god, uh, El to the Canaanites, Dagon to the Amorites and the Philistines, had... 70 sons. This number 70 in the ancient Near East represented the complete set, all of them, not one left out. Those sons of God, the sons of their chief God, were the gods who ruled the nations. The Jewish religious scholars understood that those were the angels, the, these fallen angels were the gods of their pagan neighbors, Chemosh of the Moabites and Milcom of the, the Ammonites and so forth. Uh, and uh, there was a Semitic god by the name of Reshef, considered a plague god, a warrior who was an archer. Well, there are ancient texts that have been found in the last 200 years that identify this character, Reshef, who's mentioned in the Bible a couple of times, but again, his name has been translated into English as plague, uh, is Apollo. So Apollo is actually in the Bible. In Habakkuk chapter 3, is described as following at God's heels when he marches forth from Mount Sinai. So we can be pretty sure that Apollo's not in the abyss with Kronos and the rest of the Titans. Um, in fact, in the book Giants, Gods, and Dragons, Sharon and I argue that the first horseman of the apocalypse, the rider on the white horse, is actually Apollo. Oh, well, that's interesting. And that's, uh, uh, so when we talk about the Greek pantheon, the Greek gods, Zeus, there is a reference in Revelation to the altar of Zeus, which is, right. is somewhere in modern-day Turkey, or it was. It was uncovered by a German archaeologist who moved it to 
a museum in, I think, in Berlin. In fact, right. the, the they built a, a structure to house the the altar. Uh, the the altar was used as inspiration um, for when we see that uh, famous uh, film by Reim, um, by um, the German filmmaker uh, oh, Remy Riefenstahl. Riefenstahl, right, Triumph of the Will, and Hitler is standing on this huge edifice. That is supposed to be a a likeness of the altar uh, of Zeus. Uh, Jesus calls that out as the throne of Satan. So is that to suggest that Zeus is, in fact, Satan? Uh, I argued in uh, my book, Last Clash of the Titans, that that is, in fact, who, uh, who Satan is. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus also identifies Satan as Baal, who was the chief god of the Canaanite neighbors of ancient Israel. Baal, like Zeus, was a storm god, like Thor, Jupiter of Rome. Uh, there are a number of other storm gods that were the top of their pantheon. Indra, for the ancient uh, Indian culture. Perun, for the Slavs. Um, and in all of these cultures, and we see Marduk in, in Babylon, who had storm god attributes, they, they replace another god at the top of the pantheon. In Canaan, it was El. In, uh, of course, Greece, it was uh, Kronos. In in, uh, Rome, it was uh, Saturn. They're pushed out of the top spot of the pantheon by the storm god, Zeus, Jupiter, Baal. Um, In uh, Matthew 12, Jesus is confronted by Pharisees who say, well, he's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, which means Baal, the prince. And Jesus comes back at them and says, if Satan's casting out demons by his own power, how will his house stand? So Jesus identifies the storm god of the pagans around ancient Israel, Baal, Zeus, Jupiter, as Satan. But but as you point out in the book, and this is something I didn't know, and that is that the the first uh, entity or spirit or angel to rebel against God wasn't, in fact, Satan. Yeah, in Genesis chapter 1, there's a uh, reference to the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the word there, deep, is tehom, which in Akkadian is temtum, and that is a cognate, same word, different language, for a Sumerian word, tiamat. Well, tiamat was the primordial chaos monster or chaos dragon. And that is a this struggle between a warrior god and a chaos monster is a very common story in the religions of the ancient Near East, Mesopotamia. Tiamat had to be subdued by uh, Marduk in the most famous of these stories, but when you go back in uh, older versions of that story, it was Enlil, whom Marduk replaced at the top of the pantheon. The older version of that story had the sky god Anu subduing Tiamat, and Anu was replaced at the top of the pantheon by Enlil. Um, In uh, in, uh, Greek religion, you had a chaos monster called Typhon, who had to be subdued by Zeus, in uh, the Egyptian pantheon, you had uh, Apophis, who had to be subdued every single night by the god Set, who guarded the solar boat of Ra as it went over the horizon. And uh, interesting that, uh, as you discussed on last week's program with Tom Horn, the Wormwood Prophecy, you know, is it interesting NASA chose to name this incoming asteroid that's going to pass within the orbits of right. our uh, satellites, Apophis. Anyway, this was a common thread in these religions. We even see it in uh, the Norse mythology, where Thor had to defeat a, a, a chaos serpent named Jormungandr. The, the Hurrians and the Hittites had similar stories. It's a common thread. Uh, but the difference is that in the Bible, this, this entity, Leviathan, was subdued by Genesis 1, verse 2. 
Now, there are other references to Leviathan in the Bible, um, uh, Psalm 78 for one, uh, Job 41 for another, but uh, this, this entity was subdued by God in order to bring uh, order from chaos, if you will, and uh, it's just a story that's been retold by uh, pagan cultures uh, throughout the generations. So we just have a couple minutes here before we break, but what, what, where did this Leviathan come from? It would presumably be one of the creatures that uh, God created uh, prior to creating Eden and putting Adam and Eve in the garden. And, uh, in fact, Sharon and I are going to work on a book uh, probably for next year that will be on this entity and chaos, because uh, I think if we look at what's happened around the world, well, in recent days, but even just the last 14 months or so, I think we can see the influence of chaos is still pretty strong. Oh, yes. All right. We'll uh, take a time out. Uh, Derek Gilbert, co-author of Giants, Gods, and Dragons. And uh, we'll open up the phone lines at the, uh, uh, I guess, maybe during the next segment. Take questions and comments. And uh, we'll also discuss the connections between Babel, Babylon, and what's in your wallet. We mentioned one of the identities of the four horsemen. The white horseman is Apollo. Who are the other three? And uh, we'll also... Uh, talk about the identity of Nimrod and the true location of Babel. Much more to come. Stay right where you are, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Back with more in a moment. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Derek Gilbert stays with us from Skywatch TV. The book is Giants, Gods, and Dragons. We'll take questions and comments at 416-360-0740. That's in the greater Toronto area. 416-360-0740. Toll free from just about anywhere. 1-866-740-4740. So when the the fallen angels uh, came down to earth, um, do we know how many they were? Do we know any of their their names? And do we know the the exact location where they came to Earth? The uh, rebellion led by a uh, character named Shemiyaza. This is the uh, the Watchers Rebellion who descended to Mount Hermon, according to the Book of First Enoch. Uh, led a group of about 200, and there are a number of them that are named in the book of First Enoch. This is not in the Bible. It is considered canon by the, uh, the Coptic Church in Ethiopia, but um, it was known to the Jews of the Second Temple period. It was known to the apostles because uh, both Peter and Jude make reference to the event, the events uh, described in, in the earliest chapters, the first 36 chapters of First Enoch, what uh, scholars call the Book of the Watchers, the Book of the Giants. Um, Shemiyaza is one. The other main character that uh, is worth mentioning is Azael, or Azazel. And essentially, those two of the 200 are blamed for most of what uh, evil they brought to the earth. Shemiyaza, for uh, convincing his colleagues to go along with him in this plan to take human wives and uh, produce children. And Azael, or Azazel, for teaching us things we weren't supposed to know, like uh, sorcery and divining the future and uh, contacting the spirits and, and things of that nature. So you've almost got, uh, with those two, you've got, uh, with Azael, almost a Prometheus character in Greek mythology, the one who stole fire from Olympus and was punished for that. And uh, 
again, the Shemayaza character, I'm going to argue in my forthcoming book that uh, he is to be identified as Kronos or Saturn of the Titans. Ah, and when the the um, fallen angels uh, t- took these women and, and had and had children with them, the Nephilim, w- were they taken by force? Was there an exchange for this technology? Were they did they deceive and trick uh, the daughters of men? That's really an interesting question. In Genesis chapter six, it. Uh, Verse 2 says, they took as their wives any they chose, which sort of implies that the women didn't have any choice in it. But in the book of First Enoch, the, the angels are, are condemned by God for defiling themselves with human women, and that uh, the women uh, seduced them or enticed them into these relationships. So it's, uh, uh, there are different interpretations on that. I'll go with the biblical interpretation uh, rather than the extra-biblical one, but it is uh, interesting that there are different versions of this, that uh, these angels saw how beautiful this creation was called Earth, and specifically the uh, uh, humans that he created, that God created to take dominion over the Earth, and uh, decided that uh, (laughs) they wanted to uh, get to know us a little better, apparently. Uh, it's, w- when we look at the story of Lot in, in Sodom, though, um, I, I think there's an interesting, uh, and again, this is speculative, but there's some speculation that the angels who visited Lot and his family to try to rescue them from the city, uh, as God had asked of, or as Abraham had asked of God, that uh, the men may have been attracted, the men of Sodom attracted to those angels because they recognized them for what they were, supernatural beings, and desired that contact because of a belief that uh, through that physical contact they might get some of the power from these uh, these uh, these angelic beings again that's speculation don't know that for a fact right. but that may have been part of the dynamic going on back in the days of noah now the the women uh, that first i guess um, had relations with these fallen angels do we know any of their identities uh, no we don't and when they give birth, because they were giving birth, the, the Nephilim were giants. One would assume then that their 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 giving birth would would hasten their death. The women, uh, they would have. Yeah, uh, you you'd assume so. But uh, but again, the clues that we get from sources that that I would rely on, and and again, I think First Enoch is useful insofar as it helps us to understand the strange event that's only mentioned in four verses in Genesis, and then a few passing references later in Scripture. If you know what you're looking for, references to the cult of venerating the dead. Uh, it, it helps us to understand that a little bit better, because uh, the Book of Enoch makes clear that the spirits of these giants, when they were destroyed, because they were hybrid, they were neither fully human nor fully divine, they were condemned to wander the earth until the end of time, until judgment, basically tormenting humanity. Um, but we don't really know much more than that from, uh, from any of the texts. There are a lot of fanciful texts from the second period, uh, Second Temple period, uh, like the Qumran, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. But uh, again, you got to be kind of careful as far, as far as how much uh, trust you put in those. Right. And and when a Nephilim was slain, uh, or when they when they died during the uh, the flood, they became demons. Correct. Is that what happens to that, them? That is the. Uh, that's what's specified in, in the Book of Enoch, that those spirits will be called evil spirits condemned to wander the earth until the judgment, tormenting humanity. And again, that was the understanding of the early church fathers. Uh, you read the writings on uh, demons by 
uh, early theologians like Irenaeus and Athenagoras and Clement of Rome and Justin Martyr and Origen and, and Tertullian and so forth, they were in agreement that the giants were created by this unholy union of angels and humans, and the spirits that proceeded from those giants after death are the demons that uh, uh, that that. Uh, uh, plague the earth. What's interesting, uh, in, when you read the, the writings of the Greek poet Hesiod that I mentioned in the previous segment, um, his work called Theogony is what we uh, is where we get a lot of what we know about the Greek religion, ancient Greek religion. He also understood that the men of the Golden Age, these demigods of the Golden Age, when Kronos ruled in heaven, when the watchers walked the earth, in other words, when they died, their spirits became daemons, demons, except that the understanding of these demons by Hesiod and other Greek and Roman uh, religious uh, thinkers was very different from the Jewish and Christian concept of demons. They believed that they were kindly and helpful and would you know, uh, bestow gifts on humans as long as you were offering them sacrifices. Right, right. And... Um... We had these, uh, you know, the oracles of Delphi and so forth, and these priestesses in, in the various temples. Were they then communicating with these demons or or directly with the fallen angels? How were they getting their messages and from whom? That is a really interesting question, and it led to some research that turned up some interesting and surprising um, information uh, for the book. Yes, I believe that they were hearing from something. Uh, Apollo was the god who was... Um, believed to be the, the one who, who fed information to the oracles in the Greek and Roman period. So the classical period, uh, going back further in history, there were different gods in Mesopotamia, the sun god Shamash and the storm god uh, uh, Hadad or Baal were the ones who uh, helped uh, diviners see into the future. But uh, yeah, the, the oracles of Apollo, um, and uh, this, this led to the creation of the, the Sibylline books that were used as a uh, an oracular guide for the government of Rome from about uh, 500 B.C. until about the first century A.D. Um, after the, the, the resurrection of Jesus, when this, this uh, Christian cult began to spread from Jerusalem around the Mesopotamian, over the next three centuries, those oracles began to fall silent. And, uh, in fact, the worst persecution of Christians was not during the time of Nero in the first century AD, it was in the late third century under Diocletian and his uh, co-emperor Galerius. And it's because Galerius had visited one of these oracles and was told that uh, because of the righteous men, referring to Christians, uh, essentially the signal's not coming through anymore. And so Galerius reported back to Diocletian and suddenly uh, Christians were being uh, uh, deprived of property, they were being imprisoned, they, they were kicked out of the army, and uh, that was the worst persecution of Christians. It was because the oracles of Apollo were falling silent because of the influence of the Holy Spirit and Christianity. Oh, that's interesting. So, getting back to the uh, the Nephilim, uh, in Genesis 6, it says something that we, there were giants in those days and again later, so presumably post-flood. If they were wiped out during the flood, how did we end up with uh, Goliath and, and other giants after they were wiped off the face of the earth, presumably? Well, a couple of answers to that. Uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, a friend of ours who can actually read the original languages, uh, that's, that's not my gift, points out that in Genesis 6, the verse that says, um, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. Of course, that's a euphemism. Um, 
he says that the Hebrew word translated into English as when, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, can also mean whenever. So the Nephilim were on the earth whenever the sons of God came into the daughters of men. Uh, so there may have been a second incursion. I'm not sure about that. I tend to think that these uh, angelic beings, seeing their brothers who had been chained in gloomy darkness, to use the phrase of uh, the, uh, the Apostle Jude, uh, didn't want to suffer that same fate. So I don't know that there was another incursion. And we point out, and it pointed out in our previous book, Veneration, Sharon and I, that uh, the, the, the giants that in, were encountered by David and his men, who are described as descendants of the giant, uh, in, in the book of Second Samuel, the Hebrews, Yeladeh Ha-Rapha, uh, Yeladeh is not a term that refers to literal blood descendant. It is one that means servant of and we argue that what you've got with Goliath and his brothers are not, I mean, yes, they were, they were larger than average size. There's some dispute about the, uh, the Hebrew text. Was, was Goliath nine foot nine or only six foot nine? Either way, that's still really big at a time when the average Israelite soldier was about five foot four. But uh, they were more likely members of a warrior cult that venerated the spirits of these Nephilim. As evidence, and it's circumstantial, but as evidence, one of the giants killed by David and his men was named Ishbi Benob, B-E-N-O-B. It's usually spelled in our Hebrew Bibles as one word, Benob. It's actually two words. It's Ben-Ov. The word O-B in Hebrew, Ov, means medium or necromantic ritual pit. In other words, it's where you would go or the person you would talk to to communicate with the spirits of the dead. In other words, demons. So this giant uh, was the son of the medium and was likely part of a cult that actually venerated these warrior spirits. Now, larger than average. I gotta, excuse me, Derek, I've got to jump in here. We have to take a timeout. We'll come back and pick up on that. Derek Gilbert, co-author of Giants, Gods, and Dragons right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Derek Gilbert hosts Skywatch TV, a weekly Christian television program, and co-hosts Sci Friday, a weekly TV program that looks at science news with his wife, author, and analyst Sharon Gilbert. Together, they're the authors of Giants, Gods, and Dragons. So post-flood, uh, now we had Nimrod, sometimes, I guess, described as... Uh, um, you know, the the first emperor or, you know, the first uh, one who tried to bring about a, a kind of a new world order was Nim Nimrod is, is a descendant of N Noah, correct? One of Noah's, is it Shem or who is he, uh, he connected he to? Descends from, he descends from Ham by way of uh, yeah. uh, Canaan or by, by way of Cush. Uh, so uh, Nimrod was the second generation after the flood. And the basis of his kingdom, the base of his kingdom was a, a city called Uruk, U-R-U-K. In the Bible, it's Erech, E-R-E-C-H. But uh, that's the same name that we call that land by today, Iraq. Isn't it interesting? Ah, when uh, right. the Brits and the French divided up the land after World War I, they chose the name of Nimrod's kingdom. There is a historical character in the, Sir the, Sumerian, uh, the Sumerian king list by the name of Enmerkar, who, like Nimrod, was the second king of Uruk after the flood. And there's some poetry that has survived 
Uh, now, the Uruk period of history, scholars, archaeologists, they know about this. The, roughly from 3900 B.C. to 3100 B.C., that city, Uruk, in southeast Iraq, controlled everything between the Tigris and Euphrates as far north as the mountains of Turkey. It was a dominant city, and uh, they had a lot of influence on history. Uh, Nimrod probably lived sometime during that period of history. Um, there was a, one of the poems that survives about this, this Enmerkar, who I think is Nimrod, is that he tried to rebuild a temple at the ancient city of Eridu, E-R-I-D-U, for the god Enki. This temple was called the Abzu, which is where we get the word abyss. So Nimrod, Enmerkar, tried to build uh, this, this temple up to be an abode of the gods, according to this poem. And uh, the poem mentions the confusion of languages. And interestingly, when archaeologists dug at this site in 1949, they found that the top layer uh, that they found for the Temple of Enki, which would have been the largest ziggurat in all of Mesopotamia, the steppe pyramids of uh, Mesopotamia, this would have been the largest and oldest uh, because the bottom layer goes back to like 5000 BC, uh, except it was never completed. They said that the top layer, which which uh, coincides with the end of the Uruk period of history. As it moved into a new phase of history in Mesopotamia, the uh, temple was not completed, and it was very quickly covered over with drifting sand. Was, we read in the, uh, the end of uh, Genesis, uh, that, that story in Genesis chapter 11, um, God confused the languages, and they left off building the city. So archaeology confirming the narrative in the, in the biblical account. And, and what was the, the Tower of Babel supposed to... Uh, accomplish what? What was it? What? 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 What was its purpose? Best guess, because the Bible doesn't tell us. But best guess, based on this poem, which is called Enmerkar and the Lord of Orata, is that he was trying to build a a a home on earth for the gods. And again, think of them as fallen angels. But uh, that appears to be appears to have been the point of this this temple. They weren't so primitive. 5,000 years ago, that they thought that they could stack mud bricks up high enough to reach the sky. That was not the purpose. They were trying to build essentially a portal, if you will, a supernatural portal to bring the gods down to mankind. And again, as we read, God confused the languages, divided the nations, and then in Deuteronomy 38, uh, 32, verse 8, uh, it says that he numbered the nations according to the number of the sons of God. Essentially, a, a new generation of angelic beings was placed as... Uh, supervisors as the gods of the nations. We see this in Deuteronomy 4, verses 19 and 20. God allotted these angelic beings, the host of heaven, to the nations for their gods, but reserved Israel for himself. And then in Psalm 82, uh, if you, your listeners should read Psalm 82, because it reads like a, a courtroom scene in heaven. God condemns these angels these sons of God, for ruling unjustly. And, and uh, it reads, in part, Though you are God's sons of the Most High, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. The deaths of these gods has been prophesied by God himself. Right, right. In the book, you, you make a connection between Babel, Babylon, and what's in your wallet. Mm. This is in the section where we... Uh, identify the uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse and i credit sharon with this uh, all of the good ideas from our house come from her head several <laughs> years ago she wrote a book called ebola and the fourth horseman of the apocalypse and she pointed out in that book that the fourth writer uh death 
in Greek is Thanatos, and Thanatos was known as a god, small g god, in the Greek pantheon. Uh, and Hades, likewise, followed with him. Hell followed with him. So she reasoned, if Thanatos and Hades are named, then who are the other three? You know, we make the case for Apollo being the rider on the white horse. The rider on the red horse is war. That's pretty easy. Uh, Ares would be his name in the Greek pantheon, but we uh, found research by credentialed scholars who shows that uh, this is just Chemosh, who is the national god of Moab. So this is a lot, you know, Ares, Mars, a lot older god, uh, worshipped a lot farther back than we thought. The rider on the black horse was a little tricky. This is the one who goes out uh, carrying scales. But the word translated scales in Greek, zugos, is uh, actually referring to a, uh, a yoke. Everywhere else that word in Greek is used in the New Testament, it refers to the yoke that you would put on the necks of uh, oxen. And uh, the description of what happens when this rider on the black horse rides um, looks like just economic uh, calamity. Uh, the price is just going through the roof, uh, people starving, uh, not able to buy enough just to make. But, but uh, I, I, we argue in the book that uh, this is essentially a picture of economic servitude, hence the, the yoke that the rider on the black horse carries. Ah, we look at our economic situation, and I'm sure you've talked about this on your program, where um, credit card debt, student loan debt, the, the real estate bubble, just within the last uh, 20 years or so, all designed to get us into a cycle of constantly being in debt, taking out loans and paying loans to our, our banking masters. And, of course, now the, uh, the, the push is on to do away with physical cash and move us all to a digital currency, which means that none of us will have any economic financial privacy anymore. Everything we buy or sell will be tracked because it will all be recorded on a computer somewhere. So our argument was that this was a god in the ancient world who must have had something to do with ledgers, with accounts, with economic uh, uh, activity, commerce, and that would be the Greek god Hermes, who was known in ancient Babylon as Nabu. And um, when you to begin looking at the, the characteristics of that god. Nabu in Babylon was a god of scribes, but he was also the god who kept the ledgers. In fact, they found, just within uh, the last uh, 20 years or so, a temple dedicated to Nabu of accounts. And interesting. All right, Derek, we have to aspect? step away again. Okay. Quick, quick time out back with more of Derek Gilbert. Giants, gods, and dragons right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, Derek Gilbert stays with us. A little while longer, uh, a few minutes longer, actually. Just a heads up, um, on uh, Saturday, next week, Saturday, or this week, technically, Saturday of this week, uh, on Coast to Coast, Derek will be with me. I think it's for three hours, isn't it, Derek? That's uh, what the producer said, so I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, we'll dil- be able to drill down even deeper, but uh, um, I know that you're in, uh, in enjoying some of the... Uh, uh, the folks in our in our YouTube live chat and uh, YY uh, is uh, brings up an excellent point. She's suggesting that CERN is the modern day Tower of Babel. What do you think? 
it's an interesting thought. I know uh, my uh, friend uh, Josh Peck, who co-authored the book with me on the uh, UFO phenomenon, The Day That Earth Stands Still, co-authored with Tom Horn the book uh, Abaddon Ascending about uh, CERN and what exactly they're doing there. They're trying apparently to break into another dimension. So in that sense, yeah, that would be a modern-day Tower of Babel because, again, that appears to be what uh, Nimrod was trying to do. All right. Now, uh, we were talking about the the, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and uh, there's uh, the deadly rider on the pale horse, and uh, he's accompanied by wild beasts. What are these wild beasts? This is something that grew out of that book that Sharon wrote about seven years ago on the Ebola outbreak, Ebola and the fourth horseman of the apocalypse. The Greek word is therion, which is the diminutive form of thera, meaning beast. So she argued that it uh, might be little beasts, in other words, bacteria or perhaps viruses that are the instrument of death wielded by Thanatos. And uh, in fact, that was the, uh, the inspiration for this particular book. Tom Horn came to us and uh, came to Sharon, actually, asked her if she would write a book um, on the, the COVID-19 outbreak in the context of Bible prophecy. She came to me and said, what do you think? Can we maybe broaden this a little bit so it's a little more evergreen? Because COVID will fade just as Ebola, thankfully, back in 2014 faded. And uh, so that was what led to this, uh, what led to this book. But uh, when it comes to beasts, again, Therion might actually refer to something a little smaller than we normally think of. Hmm. So when you see the, the events playing out uh, in this way, I mean... And, and obviously this happens uh, every time that there is, you know, cataclysm in the world. We start thinking about uh, end times. Um, what do you think? Are we are we in the early stages of the tribulation? Uh, I don't think we're going to be here during the Great Tribulation. But, you know, as Christians, we need to remember the words of Jesus said that anyone who followed him would be uh, subjected to tribulation. So I guess it's just a matter of degree. Um, there's no faster way to get... Christians arguing than to ask, you know, hey, pre, pre, uh, pre post, or mid, uh, re- referring to the timing of the rapture. And then, of course, you've got the pre-wrath believers who uh, uh, kind of split the difference there between pre and mid. Um, I think we're looking at, uh, with COVID-19 and with the Great Reset Initiative of the, uh, the World Economic Forum, I think we're seeing what the arrival of the Antichrist will look like. We don't think that he's here yet. We certainly don't believe that uh, taking this, uh, taking the vaccine is the mark of the beast or anything like that. There's a lot of the book of Revelation you have to get through before you get to the Antichrist and the mark of the beast. But it will look something like this. There will be some sort of global crisis which will compel people to demand more government intervention in their lives. The World Economic Forum is trying to use this to roll out more uh, economic control, uh, essentially to try to eliminate the middle class uh, uh, especially here in the United States and Canada and the West. China is on board with the World Economic Forum because that fits into China's long-term goal, which is to uh, become the dominant superpower. But, no, I, I don't think we're there yet. We're closer to the end than to the beginning. But when we get right up on the arrival of this character called the Antichrist, the beast that emerges from the sea in Revelation 13, it's going to look a lot like what we've been through the last year. How important is the construction of a third temple? Is it, in fact, the the third temple that we're talking about, or is the is the temple a metaphor for the church, uh, the Christian church, or or our our bodies as a as a as a vessel for for God? 
we don't need a third temple as Christians. Uh, we pay attention to the movement in Israel because it's an indication of what uh, religious Jews are, are looking for, those who see a, 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 a who believe in end times prophecy. But we have friends in Israel, both Orthodox Jews and Messianic Jews, and the, the political drive for the Third Temple in Israel uh, is not as popular there as it is in, say, the West, among American right. evangelical Christians and, Christian, and uh, Chinese Christians who send a lot of money to Israel to try to make this happen. Most Jews in Israel don't want a Third Temple because they say, That's my understanding. synagogues now. Yeah, and uh, that some of this movement to push for the Third Temple is essentially a move to raise funds so that the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox community, will have more political power. Uh, a friend so, of ours over so there. So you don't need politics. you don't need a third temple constructed before the before the arrival of the Antichrist because he's supposed no. to enter into the third temple, go into the Holy of Holies, declare himself to be the Messiah. Right, but you could do that with a tabernacle. The Jews used a tabernacle at Shiloh uh, for 369 years before they had a temple. So, uh, in fact, uh, one of our uh, a friend of ours now has become a friend. Jim Barfield of the Copper Scroll Project argues that there's a good chance that a cave at Qumran might house the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. So, uh, if a tabernacle could be constructed, and perhaps not even on the Temple Mount, but at Qumran, which, when you look at it from the air, is essentially a map, a reversed map, scaled down of the city of Jerusalem, um, it's possible that there would be a way to get around this, at least in the minds of observant Jews. So. And how is the Antichrist yeah. going to deceive, how is he going to be able to deceive uh, Christians that he's the, the second coming of Christ? He's going to deceive the Jews that he's their Messiah. He's going to de uh, deceive Muslims that he is, what, the 11th Imam? He's going to achieve, He's going to deceive the Buddhists that he is the, is it the compassionate Buddha? How is he going to manage to do all of that? Um, I mean, and, and is he going to come from the world of business or... Uh, from the world of religion, the United Nations, where? That's Well, that's an excellent question. I, I dove into that in my book, Bad Moon Rising. My theory, and uh, this is one I'll, I'll hold loosely because I reserve the right to be wrong, is that he will be a dynamic political or perhaps military leader from Israel. Uh, now, I'm not saying he will be a Jew. I, I think he will present himself as a Jew, that he will emerge in an hour of Israel's need when they are hard-pressed on all sides by uh, enemies, perhaps Islamic enemies. I think Islam's role in the end times, sadly, is essentially to serve as cannon fodder, because if such a dynamic Israeli were to lead Israel to a victory against overwhelming odds, there are rabbis in Israel who would declare him the Messiah on the spot. Messiah ben Joseph, Messiah ben David is here, and... If Christians are still here, there are a lot of Christians who support Israel. We love Israel. Uh, a lot of Christians might be tempted to see this man as the Messiah as well. If you understand end times prophecy correctly, you won't make that mistake, but not everybody does. I think that is a, the most plausible scenario that I have come up with. I know it's not a popular one, but that seems to me to be a more um, plausible deception for Jews than, uh, say, a, an Islamic Antichrist or a Roman Catholic Antichrist. Ah, interesting. All right. So, Giants, Gods, and Dragons. Uh, Derek, how do people get a copy? 
It's available to all major bookstores. Of course, Amazon.com has it. And uh, the best deal, if you want to get that, plus a bunch of video teachings that Sharon and I have put on DVD, uh, the best place to go would be SkyWatchTVStore.com, SkyWatchTVStore.com, and look for it there because uh, Tom Horn, as he always does, throws in a whole bunch of other stuff when you order direct from us. And how do we watch you on SkyWatch? Is that subscri- do we have to subscribe? No, it is uh, YouTube. Uh, we've got a Roku channel. We have a, an Apple TV channel. Uh, there's a free mobile app as well for iOS, uh, Android, and Amazon Kindle Fire tablets. I host a daily news commentary program. We've got Sci Friday. We, Sharon and I host a weekly program called Unraveling Revelation, where we talk about this uh, every single week. And we're getting ready to launch a new program called The Bible's Greatest Mysteries. Ah, all right. Much, uh, a great deal going on. Always uh, very, very busy, and I appreciate you carving out an hour for us, and we'll talk to you next on Coast to Coast on Saturday. Look forward to it. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Derek Gilbert, co-author Giants, Gods, and Dragons. All right, when we come back, a simple um, but unassuming man, Joseph Lorendo from New Hampshire, has lived a life of enchanting serendipities, and he'll share those with us next on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Uh, Joseph Lorendo is a simple, unassuming New Englander who strung together a lifetime of remarkable coincidences, many of them involving rock concerts and meteor showers, full moons, and the weather. He's published his memoir. It's called Cosmic Coincidences, and he's jo- and he joins me this hour. If you have a remarkable coincidence to share, uh, we'll make the phone lines available to you as well a little bit later this hour. All right, let's meet the man at the center of this remarkable story, shall we? Hey, Joe, how are you? Hey, I'm great, Richard. Thanks for having me. It's an honor and it's a privilege. Uh, been a busy week and uh, there's been a lot going on in my life, so uh, high anxiety for, for some reason, but I'm looking forward to uh, uh, going over a few of the, uh, uh, some of the big, big stories, which I consider miracles. And there are some tragedies. I think the book shows a life, uh, it's a lessons in li- life, but life and death. So there's some tragedies, but there's some fun stories in it. And I know I only got an hour, so I kind of like to, to get to them in, in kind of a succession, uh, try, not, uh, try to get through it quickly, if that's all right. right. You? Yeah, right. I'd, I'd, like, I'd like to begin with, with uh, Concord, New Hampshire. Is that, is that currently home? Do you live in Concord? No, but I live close. To, I live in Laconia, which is Bike Week uh, city. You might ring a bell. Uh, every, everybody around here knows. You know, uh, motorcyclists know Laconia as uh, the original Bike Week, uh, Bike Weekend, okay. Motorcycle Weekend. It's changed now. Now it's Bike Week. So they all right. It so when you you're, when you first arrived in in uh, Concord, New Hampshire, I'd like to start there because it was a string of incidents, uh, items in the news, uh, f- uh, fairly prominent uh, items in the news that all sort of 
kind of revolve around Concord, New Hampshire, in and around the time that you arrived there. Let's uh, let's let's begin there. I think you were you, your first day working at a hospital in uh, yeah. Concord. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, it was new new to New Hampshire because I moved up here from Fall River, Massachusetts, and so anything that was national news in my local area was a big thing. So um, it was January of 1985, where you may recall Bernard Getz, the subway vigilante in New York, had shot several people, uh, and he turned himself in because they were looking for him, and nobody knew who he was, but he ended up turning himself into the Concord Police Station, uh, and it was on January 1st, on New Year's Day, I believe. So he made uh, his way from New York down to Concord, New Hampshire, and that's where he turned himself in. Yeah, yeah, and I thought okay. that was fascinating because I'm living in the area, I'm new here, and I said, gee, look at that, a big news story, you know, in our local area. And so, you know, 12 months go by, December comes along, and I, I accepted a job in December uh, at the Concord Hospital, second shift floor maintenance, and uh, the guy who was training me said, hey, look out the window, and I did, and he says, there's a hearse out there, and I didn't think nothing of it, it's a hospital, and he said, uh, a teenage boy was shot by police in the hallway of Concord High School today, and he he died. And I was, that's a big story. So I, and it was my first day at my new job, and I thought, how do you you know? You, it, it makes it easy to remember uh, you know, <laughs> what happened because I worked there. So I, when I got home, uh, I said, hey, put the news on because you know this is a big story. So. It's interesting, you know, in, indirectly involved me, not really, you know, I mean, sort of, whatever. So I uh, would go uh, about eight weeks after that, which is January 86, uh, Krista McAuliffe in the Space Shuttle Challenger from Concord High School. Of course, we all know uh, the Ch- Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. And so I said to people, isn't that an unusual you know, close proximity to two tragedies. First, you have a student who police shot in the hallway, and the story was he had been drinking. He was a former student, so he wasn't a current student, but for whatever reason, he came back in the hallway and had a shotgun or something, and, and the police shot him, killed him. And I said, so you have a student who dies in the Concord, hospital, uh, Concord High School hallways by police. And now, t- today it seems weird. It seems even stranger today because it... it it didn't. It wasn't as common back then. It, so it was a biggest. Today we have these school shootings that are uh, at too, all too common in, in supermarkets and churches. So uh, back then, it, it, you know, shootings were common, but not like they are today. It doesn't seem. But anyway, I said for for, for an eight week period, you have a student who's killed in the high school, and then you have a space shuttle challenger teacher from the school, and one of the biggest stories probably of the century. You know, it's right up there. <laughs> and I said, it's just uh, seems strange that they were so close together. I mean, people don't get shot in the Concord High School every day. And so it, uh, uh, it just seemed like we had Bernard Getz rings in 1985, and then at the end of 85, the young man is killed in the high school. And I said, gee, there was two big stories within a year. And then make it bigger story was the Krista McAuliffe story. So I thought, gee, Concord, in, in about a year's time, had these three really big stories, and those are like a life-and-death story, which I say 
the some of the most of all the stories in the book that I wrote uh, reflect on life and 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 try to to show people that, it, that they need to appreciate life a little more, and the other stories um, actually add to that. So uh, one of the things that I, I like to tell people was, well, the book was written in three sections. The first section was only 100 pages, and the second section was about 100 pages, and the third section was 100 pages. So I actually finished the book three times, and I was putting it away for good. The first section was really to leave to my kids. It was just the family story and a few supernatural things that happened to me so that I could leave them someday. And once I finished that, things kept happening. So I'd add a chapter, and then I know sooner I'd add a chapter, and I'd add another chapter because something else. And then next thing I know, I've, I've had just updated it uh, December 2020 uh, with the last update. Anything I write now is going to be a book, too. But the, the thing I mentioned to people was in 1978, my last sibling was born, and she was my seventh sister. I have an older sister, and then is me, and then I had six younger sisters. So I had seven sisters. It didn't dawn on me at the time, but people would always say, Joe, hey, Joey, I hear you got seven sisters now, seven sisters. I hear people, hey, how many sisters you got now, seven? And so I heard that a lot. And when I used to watch uh, channels like Nova, PBS, and space stories about the stars and stuff, and I learned about the Pleiades, and the Pleiades being the name of the seven sisters in Greek mythology. So I always look up at that star cluster, special to me. It feels like I have a special connection to it. And that starts the book. That's the beginning of the coincidences, because I've always felt that I had that connection with the Pleiades. Okay, so, I'm going to get you, Carlos to put you on hold for a second, because right, I don't yeah, think you sure. can hear me. So... Um, Carlos, if you could put him on hold, pick up the phone and speak with him. And uh, I'm not sure whether he's he doesn't have the phone to his ear, but um, I'm not able to interject and ask him questions. So it seems like he can't hear me. Uh, Joseph Lorendo is my guest, the author of Cosmic Coincidences. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll open up the phone lines towards the bottom of the hour and take questions and comments. Perhaps you have a, a remarkable coincidence that you'd like to share with us as well. And many of Joseph's coincidences involve rock concerts, uh, meteor showers, full moons, weather phenomenon, things like that. It's, uh, it's a fascinating story. And uh, Carlos, if you've uh, had a chance to speak with uh, Joe, maybe you can put him back on the air now. Do we have you back, Joe? Oh, he wants me to hang tight. All right, let me give you the phone numbers. 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. And toll free from out of town, 1-866-740-4740. 1-866-740-4740. Your coincidences, uh, strange, wonderful, enchanting serendipities, if you will. All right. Joseph Lorendo, Cosmic Coincidences. Do we have him back now? No, we don't. Carlos, do you want to put him back on the air for me? Okay, here we go. There Joseph, we go. are you back? Yeah, I'm back. Joseph? Here we okay, go. Okay, can you hear me? I can hear you, yes. Okay, because when you're talking and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm trying to interject, you're not hearing me. Oh, okay. All okay. right, so I want to begin with, or next, I'd like to discuss... Um, the uh, the Ringo Starr concert and how this sort of unfolded. You were listening to you used to listen to this particular radio station in New England, 
and uh, it would offer listeners a chance to win tickets to, to these well, various concerts. So tell me about how you won tickets to Ringo Starr. Yeah, this is in the late well, 80s, I, right? Yep, eight, 1989. Now, I used to listen to, and I still do, I listen to a bunch of radio stations, so I'm always channel surfing. And that's how I find out what's going on in the area, if there's any special concerts coming or, uh, you know, giveaways, whatever. And working at the, as a dishwasher part-time, uh, we had the oldies channel on at work, and they advertised for the Ringo Starr All-Star Band coming to the Kingston Fairgrounds on August 16th, 1989. And um, I wanted to go to that, so I asked all my friends, and nobody really had the money to go, and I really didn't have the money to go, and I didn't even have a car. But it was Joe Walsh, Clarence Clemens, Billy Preston, Niles Lofgren, Rick Danko, Dr. John, Clarence Clemens, did I mention him? (laughs) Anyway, so I wanted to go, and nobody could go. We couldn't really go. We didn't have the money. But the second week of August, I hear the news people talking about a really good Perseid meteor shower this year. It was going to be one of the best 100 meteors an hour, and I had to work that night. So I changed my night with another worker. I worked Saturday. He was going to work uh, my night so that I could watch the meteor shower out in the field. And it turned out, we switched days, it ended up raining. So I had no media showers. I was disappointed. So I went to a friend's house, and they were going out, and they said if I wanted to hang, I could hang in their house. So I put the Red Sox on the television, and I put a different channel on, which was the classic rock channel uh, out of Manchester. And they came up with, they were going to give away several pairs of tickets to the Ringo Starr concert. So when they did, they wanted the first five callers, and I called, and I won a pair of tickets. So I was extremely excited because I took the night off to win to watch the media showers and it rained so I was disappointed very disappointed and it turned out better for me because the media showers didn't seem that important anymore I was going to go see Ringo Starr that I wanted to go and about an hour later they were giving away more tickets well I didn't have time to call my friends and tell them to listen or try to win I just said well I'll call and I used their name I won my friend a pair of tickets and the very next morning, I was getting up out of bed, and the morning show was giving away five pairs of tickets. And I called, and I told them I'd used a different name. I won my other friend a pair of tickets. Even though I feel that's a little sleazy, I'm sorry. But, you know, these people really wanted to go, and we were all broke. So anyway, I had to tell I told, told two of my friends that we got the, we're all going, six of us. You won and three pairs of tickets. Six, well, three, pair, three pairs of tickets, you know. Right. And so I was so excited. And I was shaken, and I'm shaken now. <laughs> and I said, this is a miracle, because, it, you know, it, stuff like that don't happen that often. So a few days before the concert, we're getting ready. I'm at work, and I go get the newspaper out of the, 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 the newspaper machine in the hallway, and I'm taking my break, and on the front page is a picture of the moon. And it says, total lunar eclipse, August 16th. And i looking at that, and I'm saying, that's the night of the concert. So not only did I win the tickets because of the media showers, now there's going to be a full lunar eclipse at the concert, the outdoor concert. So now I thought I had a miracle before. Now this is multiplied, another coincidence. And I start telling all my friends, oh my God, there's going to be a full lunar eclipse while we're at the concert, you know. And 
I still get shaken about it. And so, you know, we, we go, and I'm at the concert, and I'm shaking. I really am. And I am now, like I said. So we get to the concert, and this concert starts, and in, 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 um, uh, Ringo comes out, and he says, uh, uh, he, he sings uh, Don't Come Easy, and we the first song. And then right, it, right after that song, he says, uh, he says, Joe just told me that at 9.15 there's going to be a total eclipse of the moon. And so if things get crazy, don't worry about it. That's exactly his words. But and he wasn't referring all, to you, Joe. He was referring to Joe Walsh. <laughs> yeah, but my friends all looked at me because I was the guy going around telling them this is going to be a full moon. Right, right. You were the Joe that kept talking about the full the, the lunar eclipse. Yeah, yeah. And so they, they looked at me funny, and it was just a precious moment, you know. But uh, and, and later on, he comes on after a few more songs, and he says, uh, uh, tonight's the 20th anniversary of Woodstock. Let's hear it for Woodstock, everybody. And, and he said, that was in a field, too. So here I am thinking, we're, at, we're on a, an anniversary, an exact anniversary of Woodstock in a field with a bunch of groups of seven different recording artists in this, in this band, just like Woodstock. And there's a full, total lunar eclipse happening. And we watched it. We could see the crowd looking up at the moon every so often in between songs and watched it. It started at 9.15. We, we saw a total lunar eclipse during the Ringo Starr All-Star first tour. Unbelievable, you know? And then Billy Preston comes out at the end, uh, toward the end, the last few songs. And he says, how's everybody doing? How's everybody doing? And he says, uh, I'm going to dedicate the next one to the eclipse. And he sings, that's the way God planned it. Uh-huh. So Interesting. I'm head rushes when I when I was there that night. I, I'm, I this is surreal. This can't be happening. Right. It's, it's as if he was talking directly to you. This is the way God plans it. Uh, yeah, maybe I'm inspired to write about it because something like that should be documented. I mean, when I can prove all those things happened, uh, nobody else is going to document it. It's, it would have been a waste if there was if that's the way God did plan it. That would have been a waste to not document it. And have right, right. But, that, but, but Joe, there was another anniversary that night, August 16th. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't find that out that night. I found it out a, a couple of weeks later or something. I don't know when. It wasn't immediate. But later on, you know, I always think, well, oh, that August 16th Ringo Starr concert. But then I look in the paper, and oh, it's a anniversary. Uh, Elvis's, Elvis died on August 16th. And I said, wait a minute, that's the day that I went to see that concert. So that was also the anniversary of the day Elvis died. It was 1989, so it was also the year, 20 years since Man on the Moon. Moon, like a, it was July 20th, something like that. July 20th, 1969, right. it was first Man on the Moon. So here we got, that relates to the eclipse, the moon. So the moon's shining down on us, 20-year anniversary, exactly on Woodstock's date of a concert, and like I said, seven, the way I won the tickets. And uh, later on, I found out that August 16th was also the day uh, Babe Ruth died. Which oh, I, I didn't know that. Didn't really, yeah, I, and it didn't really ma- matter at the time. It didn't seem like it was important. It had no really connection to music or anything. It was just, oh, you know, former Red Sox was traded to the Yankees. 
It has a slight New England connection to it, you know. So, uh, and there's a curse going on at the time, you know. There's a curse of the babe. So I don't know why I didn't think it, it didn't really have anything to. But, uh, right. But the, the, the location of the concert, what was it called again? Kingston Fairgrounds. Okay, so you've got the word king in there, and Elvis was the king of rock and roll. Hey, that's a coincidence, see? And all those coincidences, people say, you know, if you can find coincidences if you look hard enough for them. And I say to them, yeah, but these coincidences were of such a magnitude, and there was so many of them all at the same time. So people can make the argument to me, oh, that's just a bunch of coincidences. Yeah, it is. Oh, did we lose Joe? Are you there? All right, I think we lost Joe. All right, we'll get him back. Joseph Lorendo, Cosmic Coincidences, a memoir of cosmic proportions. And uh, we're, we're going to step into a break here in just a few moments. Uh, th- we're just getting started, folks. I mean, this is just one of, uh, well, enough coincidences to fill an entire uh, book. And apparently he's working on uh, he's working on other volumes, Cosmic Coincidences. If you have a cosmic coincidence you'd like to share, 416-360-0740, 416 416- Three six zero zero seven forty, toll free from out of town one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. And we're back with Joseph Lorendo from New England, and uh, he's filled an entire volume with uh, wonderful and enchanting coincidences, some of them uh, tragic, uh, many of them life-affirming, and many of them involve uh, attending rock concerts and weather phenomena and so forth, as we'll discover. So, Joseph, uh, this radio station uh, that that you, you won three pairs of tickets... Yeah, uh, I mean, what are the odds of that? I mean, I don't know how big a, a town Manchester, New Hampshire is where this radio station was, but you kept calling in, you kept winning tickets. It's almost yeah. like, you know, divine it, it, intervention. There's, yeah, it, but I mean, there's a lot of things that play into that. And I, the, uh, when I won tickets in, in 2019 to Hall & Oates, I'll get to that, they were doing a promo called Win Them Before You Could Buy Them. They were giving away the tickets six months before the show. But the uh, Ringo star was a few days before the show. So I don't right, know if the right. venue figures, well, we got, we got plenty of seats. We're not probably going to sell every one of them. So they decide to give 20 pairs to the local radio station or whatever. And it wasn't pre-promoted. I didn't know they were giving away tickets. Or I would have been taking the night off to listen to the radio, not watch the media shows. But, uh, right, right. So they didn't pre-promote now, you, it. And la- years only- later, you won tickets to, uh, to see Bad Company. Tell me about yeah. that. Yeah, it was the same thing. I was just sitting home, and, and they had tickets for Bad Company with the damn Yankees, Ted Nugent, and uh, Tommy Shaw of Sticks. And I, what the heck, I'd like to go to that, and I don't have the money, can't afford it, so I try to win and call a seven. So I'm living in Franklin, New Hampshire, and the, the station I was happening to listen to was out of Portland, Maine. And the show was out of Portland, Maine. And like I said, I channel surf. But, uh, so I win the tickets, and then uh, the name of the tour was Bad Company's Holy Water Tour. And the name of the album, you know, they're promoting Holy Water, the name of the tour. And then I look at the day, and it's on Thursday, Holy Thursday, the day before Good Friday, the weekend of Easter. And Thursday, 
along with the ticket, I forget to mention, along with the ticket comes watching the uh, sound check and dinner backstage with the band. That's the way they, they, they promoted it. So we got backstage to have dinner. It was just a cafeteria, and it was a styrofoam takeout container with a lobster and, a, and an ear of <laughs> corn on it, which was fine. But I said, I put those two things together. I said, well, Holy Thursday is the Last Supper. And here I am. I never won. I won a lot of tickets on radio stations. I listen to radio a lot. And when they give tickets away and I can't afford to go, I give it a try. I usually win, but uh, most of the time. And so here I am having a dinner on uh, the day of the Last Supper and on a tour called the Holy Water Tour. So I thought, right, right. that's rather, you know. But um, when, when I was living in Franklin at around that time, shortly after that, actually, I saw in the newspaper that they were taking auditions for Godspell. They were doing uh, a play in Guilford, which is another town, not local, not really close to where I was living, but I had nothing to do. I said, what the heck, I'll go to audition, and I did. And that's where the mother of my children, at Godspell, at a church, a um, Methodist church. But um, I had three beautiful, wonderful children, and to me, I went to that play because it was Godspell. I had no interest in doing anything like Fiddler in the Roof or Sound of Music. I would never. If it was Jesus Christ Superstar, Godspell, I said, what the heck, I'll go. I'm spiritual. I like, you know, I believe in God, so that'll be a fun thing. And so I look at that, the the effort that I made to go to Godspell, to audition, actually is the reason I have children today. Three beautiful teenagers, you know. So that's that's a big miracle to me. Well, how did you, how did you meet your wife at Godspell? Was she running the auditions? No, she was in. She was one of the uh, one of the uh, theater players. You know, yeah. Just um, it was funny because you know I was single and I don't know anybody, and we did the show and it was fun. I've never done theater before, so I was just doing it for the heck of it. So these people had always been doing theater. A lot of them, mostly for twenty years, or whatever. And I was I just happened to show up, whatever. But um. Uh, you know, I stuck around, and when people people left after the show, then I could see uh, the girls hanging around and talking, and, and their husbands would come or something like that. And there were several girls there that, you know, didn't have, uh, it seemed like they didn't have anybody there, you know. So I asked her if she would go out for coffee, and we and that's how we met, you know. But I always look at that. The thing about the Godspell concert, I shouldn't forget, the the, the opening night was Friday the 13th, August 13th, which is right about the same time of the media showers. The Perseid media showers, 11th through the 13th. So it was during the Perseid media showers, 1993, four years after the Ringo concert. And then the concert went the 13th, 14th, and 15th, which is right around at the same time as the Ringo concert. And, you know, not quite exactly to the day, but uh, it had very close proximity to... uh, Did we lose Joseph again? Not sure what's happening. Maybe he's hitting the uh, the hang-up button or something. Anyway, Carlos will try to get uh, get Joseph back. All right, something's going on with Joseph's phone. Regardless, uh, Carlos will get him back. And uh, let me again invite uh, questions, comments. I would love to hear your incredible stories of uh, serendipity or coincidences. Four one six three six zero. 740 That's in the Greater Toronto Area. Toll free from just about anywhere. 1-866-740-740. 
for 740, 866-740-4740. And uh, while we're waiting to get Joseph back on, let me just uh, remind you that uh, coming up next week, I've mentioned this before, and uh, we kind of got side-railed because of uh, we did a couple of repeat programs the last two weeks, but we are getting Joseph Farrell on the program. Uh, that's next Sunday. And um, actually, he just responded to my email uh, a few minutes ago. We don't even know what we're talking about yet, but we've got uh, we've got Joseph uh, Farrell. We think we've lost Joseph. His phone has died. Joseph Lorendo. Oh, dear. All right. Well, uh, you keep trying him, Carlos. We'll open up the lines here and uh, let's see if we can get some uh, some stories. Stories of coincidences. 416-360-0740-866-740-4740. All right. Joseph Lorendo did not charge his phone, perhaps, but um, uh, I've got something strange going on there. All right. Um, we don't have time now, but one of these days I'll tell you about, I don't know if you would categorize this as a coincidence or just kind of a strange factoid, um, but... Um, if it wasn't for a ham sandwich, we may not have had World War I. And without World War I, we may not have had World War II. All because of a ham sandwich. I kid you not. I kid you not. Let me just give you the summary here. The, um, the person that assassinated uh, Franz Joseph in Serbia back in uh, 19, 1914, I guess, uh, was one of several would-be assassins. And uh, what happened was the, um, the assailant that killed Franz Joseph and his, uh, his wife sort of gave up because uh, he was supposed to wait on a, a particular street corner for the for the emperor to drive by and unfortunately what had happened was the um the, the car got lost and uh it was delayed so the assailant gave up and he went to get some lunch he went into a deli he ordered a ham sandwich and while he's coming out with a ham sandwich the car with franz joseph and his wife passed by, passed by the, uh, the that very delicatessen, and the uh, of course we know what happens next. The uh, emperor was assassinated along with his wife, and thus began World War One. All right, all because of a ham sandwich. There you go. We've got Joseph Lorendo back. I don't know what's happening with your phone, Joseph, but um, I'm glad you're back with us. I'm so back. I just I just switched phones, so hopefully this will be a little better. All right. So um, we, you were talking about trying out auditioning for Godspell, and that's how you met your wife. And I mean, as you say, you had no experience in the theater. Whatever possessed you, do you remember what happened that night? You just decided, I'm going to go and try out for Godspell. And then you meet the mother of your children. Yeah, I just, I had time. You know, the rehearsals are in the evening. Um, I was laid off from the dishwashing job at, the, at the, uh, the, the restaurant, so I was looking for work. I had nothing to do, and it, it was Godspell. So it would have been Godspell or Jesus Christ Superstar. I'd be interested, but I wasn't interested in if it had said Fiddle Around the Roof or Sound of Music. Right, right. It wouldn't have been anything I'd be interested in, but Godspell, hey, what the heck. I was trying to learn how to play guitar a little bit, I'm trying to learn a little bit about music. I figured, what the heck, I could go to theater and see what happens, you know. 
And so, yeah, that's where I met her. Um, you know, I asked her out. We went for coffee, and uh, seven years later, we had a child. <laughs> and I live with them now. And um, so that's where I was mentioning it um, before I think we got lost, was um, I took my son, uh, August, uh, it was April of, of 2019, uh, the news station was giving away tickets to Hall & Oates. And I called, and I was the first winner on a new station. And I got that recording on Cosmic Coincidence, the book on Facebook, if you want to hear it. And um, we went to the show, and uh, Hall and Oates sang Man Eater, their first song, came out saying Man Eater. And the concert official, concert official came out, and I can't hear you still. Hello? Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. So um, the concert official came out and said, we're going to have to ask everybody in the lawn section to go in their cars because of the storm coming. And so people had to leave, and they delayed the concert for 45 minutes. And after 45 minutes, the concert official came out and said, we're going to cancel the show altogether because there's a storm coming. So me and Joey disappointed. We won the tickets. We only see one song from Hall & Oates. We go back to the car. It starts pouring rain, we get soaking wet, we get to the car, and we're bummed out, we're disappointed. A couple of days later, he says to me, Dad, I was watching the Woodstock documentary on PBS, and on August 17, 1969, there was a storm that delayed the concert for four and a half hours. We were at a concert for Hall & Oates on August 17, 2019, where the show was delayed for 45 minutes and then canceled. 50 years exactly, the same thing happened on Woodstock. Can you hear me? There you go. Yes, I can. can so what do you think that's, what is that all about? Why does this happen? Well, that, you know, it, it, I, think, I think it's to get people to pay attention to the book. In the first page of the book, the first page of the book I put down that I asked people to follow along and check, check the facts and check the dates for themselves. And can you still hear me? Yes, I can. No, but what and, I'm asking you, Joe, is why does it happen to you when you're there? What's, what, what, is, what is it all about? We'll, I'll, we'll just leave that as a rhetorical question for the moment because we'll take a time out. We'll come back and uh, discuss further. Joseph Lorendo, Cosmic Coincidences, a memoir of cosmic proportions. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Joseph Lorendo stays with us from New Hampshire, the author of Cosmic Coincidences. So before the break, Joseph, I was asking you, why do these things happen to you? Yeah. What's, what, what's the point of all this? Well, see, now, when the book started out, it was supposed to be just a family book for my kids, and it mentioned the Ringo Starr concert and meeting their mother at Godspell. Now, once the book was that point, it seemed like there had been stuff kept happening so that I kept adding to the book. And, and, and that is another thing, and it draws more attention to the Ringo Starr concert 
because of all those coincidences with 20-year anniversary of Woodstock, and now I'm at Hall & Oates on the exact 50th anniversary, and the same thing happens with the delay that happened at, at Woodstock. And we get caught in the rain, we get soaked. So now, it turned out to be... I, it, I'm happy that the show was canceled now because it made a chapter, and I'm enjoying having that chapter more than I would have enjoyed sitting and watching the show. So it gave me a bigger story than just going to the show. Right. Right. And, but what is the point? Why is this happening, do you think? Why do we have these coincidences, and why Why is it happening to you? Well, I th- yeah, I, I can't. I, well, I think I'm, I think I was inspired to write these things down, and I think if there's a higher power, people call them God. I like to call it cosmic love and universal love. Uh, something up there is trying to m- document these things so they don't be swept away. They, they were big enough to be remembered. And the Hall and Oates concert works with the Ringo Star because it adds to it, so that makes it more interesting that uh, a bigger story like that uh right the the other story was when when we were talking about the ringo star concert and with the anniversary of, of of babe ruth died on that same day uh we go to 2004 and because we live in new england here uh most people here are red sox fans and we were going with the 86 year curse for the longest time and uh misery here in new england but but the Faithful followers, stayed fans. And in 2004, uh, the Yankees won the first three games of the playoffs against the Red Sox, so it looked like the Red Sox no, they, were going to No, be. they were the Red You said they won it against the Red Sox. They won it against the Yankees, right? Right. The Yankees won the first three games of the playoffs ah. against the Red Sox. Got it. So the Red Sox had their backs up against the wall. The Red Yankees only needed one more win. The Red Sox had to win four straight Never been be- done before in Major League Sports history that any teams come back from 3-0 and in a seven-game series. And the Red Sox did it. They won the four games, and it was, of course, uh, one of the biggest upsets in sports history if you're a Yankee fan and one of the biggest uh, comebacks if you're a Red Sox fan. But then the Red Sox went and played St. Louis for the World Series, and the Red Sox swept St. Louis the four games, becoming the only team to win eight straight postseason games but on the eighth game or the fourth game of the world series when they were breaking the 86 year old curse october 27th 2004 there was a full lunar eclipse happening over st louis over new england we watched it we could see it i looked on tv the cameraman would zoom in on it i'd look out my window i could see it and i would tell my kid's mother because she knew the she knew the the ringo star story and I'm saying, hey, this is a full lunar eclipse happening, and they're showing it on TV. And the Red Sox are winning the fourth game of the World Series. They're breaking an 86-year-old curse that everybody's the curse of the babe. And there's the connection to the Ringo Starr. August 16th, Ringo, uh, Babe Ruth died on that day. But here's the, here's the Red Sox breaking an 86-year-old curse with a full lunar eclipse. Right. Now, it's wouldn't it have been something if someone put up on the scoreboard... That's the way God planned it. <laughs> I think that's what I was thinking, because I said, hey, you know, nobody would have expected the Red Sox to come back from, from being down that, that far in the way that they did. It was an incredible story. So that's a chapter in the book. 
you know. And- I want to ask you about your, your, the birth of your son because uh, there's an interesting story here uh, that involves John Denver. Yeah, it's a couple of stories that involve John. I was looking, flipping through it before, and he's got several mentions in there. Was he, he was the original uh, civilian in space before Krista McAuliffe, and they changed that at some point and decided to go with the teacher in space. So, he, so John Denver originally was scheduled to go on the Challenger. Yeah, 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 and then he was interesting. Uh, and, yeah, and, and then um, and then I had his CD in my car when I was picking up my son who was newborn and we're taking him home, and I had the song "Sunshine on My Shoulders" just for uh, I don't know makes you feel good. It's a good song. I'd like to you know uh, play it on the way home. So, yeah. And Can you, you tell me about the nurse. Yeah. Okay. And there. And then so when I was leaving and we were getting all our stuff together, I said to the nurse, "Thank you. You've been very, very helpful, and uh, appreciate all you." And I said, "What's your name, anyway?" And she said, "My name's Sunshine." And I said, "Well, that's nice because I got sunshine on my shoulders in the car, in the cassette radio, ready to play when we drive out of here." So, you know, I mean, it's not a huge. It, there's a lot of personal coincidences in the book like that but you know, like i said i try to get those big ones out for us because right so you so here you are you're you're about to take your son home from the hospital you thought it would be nice to queue up sunshine on my shoulders by john denver to play that to your new baby on the drive home yeah you go into the hospital <laughs> you pick up your son and the nurse's name is also sunshine <laughs> yeah. yeah that's kind of fun uh you know, and like I said, I think I mentioned that there's some people that call it a God wink when you have something like that happen to you. But the, like the concert stories that we just talked about are something supernaturally huge, not a God wink, like a personal thing. But I did put my personal God winks in between these huge, what I consider national stories of interest, you know, the concerts. The, oh. I call them miracles, so... All right, Joseph, we'll take another time out. We'll come back and uh, uh, finish up here. Joseph Lorendo, Cosmic Coincidences, a memoir of cosmic proportions. Still waiting for your coincidences at 416-360-0740 and 1-866-740-4740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Show Me the Truth 74 has a story in the uh, YouTube live chat. He writes, I woke up and appreciated being alive and thought about one time I got T-boned, obviously a car accident, and how that wouldn't happen again. I went shopping later that day and came within an angel's wing of being T-boned Again, there you go, an angel perhaps watching over him, an angel's wing. How appropriate. All right, Joseph Lorendo is with us from New Hampshire, and uh, the uh, the book is yeah. Cosmic Coincidences. Uh, Joseph, uh, what about uh, the, the, uh, the the band Kiss? There's a chapter in the band uh, in the book about Kiss. What, what, yeah. what was the coincidence revolving around that band? Well, there's several. Let's see. Uh... When, when, like, Joey's first song was Sunshine on My Shoulders that he ever heard in his life. But when he was two and a half years old, he liked Neil Diamond concert that we played, and he liked the Wiggles. And one day I found a Kiss DVD, or actually a VHS tape of 
1978 Kiss in uh, uh, Tokyo. And I played it for him, and he liked it. <laughs> so he's two and a half years old, and he's rocking up to Kiss. So one day I hear on the radio that Kiss is coming to Mansfield, Massachusetts, and he's uh, he's only three and a half. But I said they might retire, so we took him. We took him this. I got pictures in the book of Joey <laughs> rocking out <laughs> at a Kiss concert. Wait a minute, you won tickets again? No, no, I bought them. Oh, you I, bought them? Okay. Yeah, and I won those. I, I mean, I might have said one by accident, but anyway, uh, we we took him. He was only. Two, uh, three and a half years old, and I got pictures in the book of him. We went to that concert because we don't know if Kiss was going to be around when he was old enough, you know. But they've been around, so there was. Um, uh, so that started. That was his first. Well, we've seen him three or four times after that. But in 2019, in March, they're going on their farewell tour, and we decided let's go because it's the last chance we get to see Kiss. Let's go to Boston. We'll see him in Boston. So we bought tickets. And we got the last seats. There was nobody behind us. We had a brick wall. We were as far back as you could go. So they were you, you, bad seats, you could say. But with all those big screens that they have up there and the spectacle that Kiss puts on, that's not a bad seat. It was pretty good. <laughs> we don't mind. And then my youngest son wanted to come. So we had to get him a ticket. So we went. I got him a ticket. So we all go to see Kiss. We get there early. And we're walking around. We're walking around Boston Garden. There's nobody there yet. We get on an elevator, and there's two guys in uniform, in in suits, holding guitar cases, and the young, thirty-five-ish, mid-thirty looking. And I joked. I said, "Hey, I wonder if that's uh, I wonder if Gene and Paul's guitars in those cases." And the guy says to me, "Matter of fact, this is Paul Stanley's guitar." <laughs> and we looked at each other, me and Joe, my my son Louis, and he says, "You want to see one?" And we said, yeah, yeah. So he opened the guitar, and we're looking at it. It's Paul Stanley's guitar. So here we are in an elevator with Paul Stanley's guitar. And it's a special thing, you know. You don't get that close to Paul Stanley's guitar, especially when you get seats that are all the way in the back. So a little later on, I said, thank you. I patted him on the back. And a little while later, we get back on the elevator, and there's another guy there with a clipboard. And he goes, uh, you guys like Kiss? I said, yeah. And you want a pick? We got a guitar. I'll give you a guitar pick. So he gives my son a guitar pick from Tommy Thayer. So that was a set of coincidences, you know. Here we are, uh, just going to see Kiss. You know, we happen to get on the, the elevator. But then in 2020, in February, they come to Manchester, New Hampshire. So we said, why don't we go see them? You know, they're here. They're in our home. They're on home. <laughs> so we go see them again. Me, just me and Joe. And at the end of the concert, they sh- they're shooting off these confetti bombs, and I get hit in the back of the neck with a, a confetti bomb from the confetti cannon. <laughs> I was just a, it's a long story, but it's in the book, and the details are funny. But um, I don't know. It's just been a lot of fun stuff, but the, there are tragedies that I wanted to mention, too, because... Um, uh, you know, it's not all fun and games. The book's not all happy coincidences. Are you still there? All right. Share, yes, share a few tragedies then, if you'd like. Yeah, well, there was a... When, when, when Joey was in Little League, there was a woman that we knew. Her son was on the team, and she used to volunteer coach. And in 2019, uh, uh, it was June 21st, uh, there was a tra- tragic motorcycle accident and seven motorcyclists were killed. They were driving together as a group, and a vehicle over state over went 
the, the, the line in the road, and it was a tragedy. And they all died, and it was sad. We knew we, we weren't friends with her, but it was an acquaintance of ours. And it was, I, I thought about putting it in the book at the end, a little memorial like for these people. And a couple of weeks go by, and then I look at the date again. It was June 21st, 2019, and that particular day was the summer solstice. And I started reading about the summer solstice, and there's a lot of spiritualness to ancient civilizations that worship the sun and the summer solstice as a day of rebirth and a day of renewing or changing your uh, uh, being uh, uh, spiritual and, and un- unbelievable descriptions. And I thought, well, these, this tragedy happened on summer solstice. So now I can add it to the book because... It didn't have anything to do with cosmic coincidences that I knew of, and then now it does. So I just put two pages in there, a real short chapter, just to mention the fact that these people were lost on the summer solstice in 2019. So it's a sad story. Um, There's, you know, another sad story of a little boy who was lost in the woods, and that was 2003. And... Uh, his birthday was, he was, ten, he was turning 10 years old on October 12th. That happened to be the day that John Denver died, by the way, uh, in his tragedy. But this little boy was celebrating his birthday on October 12th, and he got lost in the woods. And it was during the playoffs, the Red Sox and Yankees. And I went to work, and there was a guy there who was, uh, I don't call him a Yankee fan, he was a Red Sox hater. So he enjoyed tormenting Red Sox fans, whatever. But I'd come to work, and I knew that this little boy was lost in the woods. And every night I'd see on the news that they hadn't found him, and they hadn't found him. And it was actually five days before, and he didn't survive. Uh, But that put my perspective changed about the, the playoffs and the sports are really not that important. And for me to go to work every, every, every night and and discussed Red Sox or baseball, and there's this little boy lost in the woods. So that was 2003, and that happened to be the same year that the Old Man of the Mountains crashed to the ground. Uh, New Hampshire's known for Old Man of the Mountain rock formation up on uh, up in Franconia Notch. And in May, it was May 3rd, May 3rd of uh, 2003, the Old Man of the Mountains came crashing down. And this little boy was lost October 12, 2003. And, and like I said, when I went to work and I discussed with this fellow I worked with, sports, it seemed so unimportant. And that's the lesson I took from that. Can you still hear me? Yes, I can. Yeah. yeah. And, so, uh, and so when the Red Sox went into the World Series in 2004, even though that it was a big thing with the lunar eclipse, it was always in my heart that... And that's what the lesson, I think, in that story was. And that's the chapter before the Red Sox championship story. It's a 2003 story. The Red Sox lost to the Yankees in seven games playoffs. But I'm going to work, and I'm listening to this guy who's a Red Sox hater, uh, you know, harass me or uh, making fun of the Red Sox and, oh, God, going on and on. And I just came. It was a third shift. It was a third shift job, so it was late at night. And I catch a 10 o'clock news on my way to work. I get to work at 11. And they still hadn't found the boy. And when I opened the door at work for a couple of days, it was heavy, pouring rain, 
cold, wet, windy, heavy weather. And I remember saying to that guy, they don't find that little boy. Uh, you know, it doesn't look good. And, you know, like I said, five days they found him. And it's sad. I added that story to the book for perspective. Right, uh, right. What, what, what I was going through, didn't, and it had nothing to do with me, but the Red Sox didn't have any importance to me at that point. And so that's why I had to add that chapter. Uh, this, certainly don't like these coincidences are still going on, right? You're still, I mean, are you thinking about writing a second volume? Yeah, well, see, now the book that I just f- finished, um, it, it wraps up with COVID-19. I mentioned how it seemed like a lot of these things um, were a prelude to the COVID-19, the racial tensions, um, and so I, I added bits and pieces. Um, if, we, if, we, if, if one of the Red Sox set of coincidences that I can mention quick like was Bill Buckner died on May, on March 31st, 2019. And that was sad. We all know what Bill Buckner is. And then on May 31st, Godzilla, it comes to the movie theaters. And in the movie, Godzilla destroys Boston. And he also destroys Fenway Park. So I mentioned that in the book. And that was May 31st that that movie was All right. And for those that don't know, Bill Buckner uh, was playing with the the Red Sox in 1986 when the uh, the Mets won the World Series. And, of course, the, the Red Sox were close. They came close. But that ball went bouncing down the first baseline. Should have been an easy out. Went right through poor Bill Buckner's legs. He, ne- he never lived that down for the rest of his yeah. life. So we are out of time, Joseph. Um, Cosmic Coincidences available on Amazon, I'm, I'm guessing? Yes, Amazon. It is. There's another book called Cosmic Coincidences, more of a science and astronomy book, but mine's called uh, uh, Cosmic Coincidence, a Memoir of Cosmic Proportions. And you can find the link on Facebook at Cosmic Coincidences, the book. But just before I wrap up, after that Godzilla story, May 31st, that, that destroyed Fenway Park, Godzilla in the movie, June 6th, a week later, Big Poppy gets shot in the back. If you remember hearing that story, down in uh, Puerto Rico, wherever it was there. Uh, so we had the big, Bill Buckner died poppy. On, on March uh, 31st, and, the, and then Big Poppy gets shot in the back on June 6th. So I you'll have to explain in. who Big Poppy is. He's a, he was the first baseman with the Red Sox. Um, he had designated hitter, and he's considered probably one of the best right. clutch hitters in baseball. And okay, we've got to go, Joseph. We are out of time, but thank, hey, you, thank, thank you, you for hanging out for the hour. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Richard. All right, Joseph Lorendo. Uh, My thanks to Ryan and Carlos back next week with the great Joseph Farrell. Not sure what we're going to talk about or for how long, but it'll be good. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark speak of light. What I say in a whisper proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.